Praise Jesus. You guys can take your seats. I'd like to invite up Tyler Dresback. Thank you. <laughs> You've grown. That's <laughs> how I always feel. <laughs> yeah, it's true. <laughs> Jesus, would you bless Tyler? Would you speak through him? Give him your words. Um, let us come away from this transformed and pruned and looking more like you, Jesus. Amen. Amen. Thanks, Matt. Before I start, I want to ask you guys a question. Who here has used a computer before? So you are eligible to run slides. I'm going to let you know that. Ha! Gotcha. For real, though, we need, we need people to run slides. Don't need, like, the whole church to do it, but if we could have, like, a rotation of, like, five to ten people, that'd be amazing so that our sound techs can focus on making sure things sound great back there so they're not double duty doing two things at once. So... I announced it last week, or a couple weeks ago, just plug in that again, because if I don't get people to come up, I'm going to start hunting <laughs> for you guys, so talk to me. <laughs> so this is our third series, third sermon on our worship series. Um, I'm really excited about this one, because it's probably the, one of the easiest sermons I'll ever preach, I think. Uh, Matt and I were kind of joking about it beforehand. When you talk about the cross, it's really just like, it's like this is just the best news, right? Like it's the gospel, it's the good news. Um, so this won't necessarily be like an Easter sermon, but I want to unpack why the cross is so central, specifically to our worship. And if you were here a couple weeks ago, you might remember I talked about like our identity as worshipers, that all of us, we have an identity as a worshiper, no matter what religion or non-religion you have, you are a worshiper. So it's probably worth it to figure out what you're actually worshiping and where your intentions, where your affections are going. Okay, and then Nick unpacked like spirit and truth worship last week too. And, and so that in spirit and truth, the, my affections, my emotions, my, the, my, spirit, my whole spirit within me, uh, worshiping Jesus in the truth of being aligned, not uh, wrong worship to God. Um, and so... This sermon is kind of like under that truth umbrella, in a sense, but my hope is that it doesn't just feel like, here's just some theology, like, that if, if it just feels like that, then it's just actually kind of a waste. The whole point of theology and being grounded in this is that our affections would be stirred to know him and to love him. And so this is all the basis for encounter. That's why theology is amazing, encounter is amazing. They've got to go together. So that's part of the whole series mojo, I guess you could say. And that's what we're doing tonight. So when we talk about worship, maybe a question to start with before even getting to the answer of the cross. You can kind of pretend like I didn't give you the topic now, okay? Everyone forget that we're talking about the cross because I want to want to uh, set this up for us well. When we worship, no matter what it is, there's going to be like a certain like code of ethics, if you will, to how we are going to worship the thing that we're called to worship. And, and what I mean, like just look at things in culture, whether it's politics, sports, uh, our job, vocation, anything like that, like whatever field or area, it's like there's like standards or things that we all know and agree to as to how we're supposed to be dedicated to that thing, right? So in regards to being a Christian 
or maybe in regards to even maybe a little better, knowing God or worshiping God, what is that? That's kind of what I want us to think of tonight as we go towards that. So in light of what do I worship God? What determines that I can worship God? Like it's kind of almost something we've taken a little bit for granted in a sense because it's like maybe a lot of us grew up in church uh, or it's like it's so easy because you can just start to sing a song and you're worshiping him. Yeah, it's, it's easy. It should be easy. But really, have we, have we ever like stopped to consider like why do you actually have the gall to think that you can worship God? Because there's a lot of space <laughs> between who we are and who God is, Right? What changed that we can do that now? And before I even get into that, I kind of want to talk about the nature of revelation. Okay, revelation is kind of like a big Christian-y word. People use revelation. It's like something deep and you got to pay attention to. Uh, but it's like, it's really just like something being revealed to you, right? Like it's, it's you didn't understand something and now you do. Okay, revelation. Uh, J.I. Packer and his book, Knowing God, Highly recommend this book for all Christians. It is just so rich and so good. And he wrote it for lay people. Um, So it's just like me and you, just like, how do we encounter God daily? Richness, emotions, theology, all of it. It's here. But in the beginning part of the book, he talks about how the only way you can actually know someone is if they reveal themselves to you. So if if I meet someone for the first time, all my interaction, all my knowledge of them is, is based off of this first interaction and what they're choosing to, to show themselves to me in. And maybe it's even like they're refusing to reveal something. Even that says something to me. Right? Whether it's like good or bad, whether they're secrets or whether it's just like they keep to themselves, you know. I can't know someone to the extent that they don't want to reveal themselves to me. And so J.I. Packer says it like this, the quality and extent of our knowledge of other people depends more on them than on us. Our knowing them is more directly the result of them allowing us to know them than of our attempting to get to know them. So putting this in light of God feels really daunting, doesn't it? And really this is like the problem of human history. Like we can go back to the beginning of Genesis and we even see it in a little bit of Acts, which I'll highlight here later. Human history started, or started to interact with the gods by trying to have encounters and then they'd build little altars to them, which is why we, in the Old Testament, see you know, altars already established on certain mounts. And in uh, John 4, the Samaritan woman talks about how her fathers worshiped on this mountain. It's because they, they thought they had encounters with their God on certain places. And so they tried to, come up with ways to put it into concrete, hard place. This is, this is something I can hold on to, but these gods are still not totally revealed because they're not actually God. So that's, that's kind of like the context of, of how the Bible even starts. Uh, so that's, that's kind of that daunting feeling we have here of, of the separation because if, if we know that there's the God of the Bible, Jesus, Yahweh, 
we want to worship him on his terms or how he would call us to worship him. And that sounds really intimidating or strict in a sense, and maybe there's, we feel like there's a lot of risk in getting it wrong, so maybe we don't want to step into him. And I guess maybe there is. But the way that we're going to see God reveal himself to us is going to be so much more inviting and gracious than anything we could come up with ourselves, which is what the rest of human history, the story of humans trying to find God and know him, why all those other efforts fall short. So, like I mentioned in in Genesis, uh, we see and encounter different cities, kings, kingdoms, people building altars, monuments to their God and sacrificing to them, worshiping them. Uh, And even in Acts 17, uh, this is one of my favorite passages in Acts of missionary encounters. Uh, Paul is preaching, um, and he uses their altar of to the unknown God uh, to show them that God has actually made himself known. Uh, So this is kind of like the too profound truth of Christianity that I hope will kind of set this up for when we, we don't remember the answer to the question, right? Uh, So these two profound truths that will lead us here, that Paul is arguing that God can be known, that it's not just some vague concept or idea, but then he's also arguing that he made himself known. That it wasn't you or me or someone special with more holiness went on this big journey and figured it out, or they went someplace that no person could ever go before. He opened the floodgates. So what are those floodgates? All right, we're gonna start in Genesis. This is gonna be like a, a nice, fun journey through the book of Genesis and then like fast forward to the New Testament because Matt and Nick were giving me a hard time that I went over last time. (laughs) All right, so think about this. You're in Abraham's day. Maybe you're Abraham. That'd be fun. Uh, You haven't necessarily had like an encounter with God before. Like even even the idea of God is kind of like a fuzzy thing. Like it's, you don't have the Bible. You don't have religions in a sense, as in like rituals, traditions, all this stuff. Uh, So, who is God to you? Abraham had no sense of who God was. And so this is kind of a good place to start in terms of how God reveals himself to us. And really up until this point, everything had just gone wrong from the fall. Cain kills Abel. We have the flood. Noah didn't finish that well. Tower of Babel. Then Abraham comes on the scene. He lies about his wife. There's some famines. Things are kind of a wreck at this point, okay? So then in Genesis 12, it's actually one of the first places, I kind of want us to think about this as almost like a progressive revelation in a way. Okay, so Genesis 12, God reveals himself to Abraham. I'm going to read chunks of it here, so just hang on whenever, I'll let you know whenever I'm reading scripture. So now I'm in Genesis 12. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And then verse 7, Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. 
So he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. So this is Abram's first encounter with God. And it's, it's really just kind of gosh open, be like, hey, I'm going to bless you, man. And Abram's like, sweet, I'll build an altar. Like, that's what, that's what like, us humans do whenever we encounter, like, the big powerful gods of the universe. We build an altar to them because they're going to they're gonna reciprocate that to me, okay? So hey, we got a good exchange going on here, right? Uh, so it's kind of funny that uh, this is the first start and it's such a, remember, we don't know the Bible yet. We don't know Jesus. We don't have religion, traditions, any of that stuff. Uh, Abram is just compelled to do this by God's presence alone. The promise that he gives him, he had to feel something. And he's like, all right, here's an altar. I'm sacrificing. I'm worshiping. A few chapters later, Genesis 15. Uh, we have God give Abram a first covenant. Uh, and it's two things. Abram, Abraham's, Abram's at this point. Abraham's offspring will number the stars and that his offspring will have that land. And he specifies to him what land that will be. So Genesis 15, 1 through 11. It says, After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. So here's, here's another bit of revelation that God gives Abram. He reveals himself as protector as a shield. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childish, childless, childish. <laughs> I continue childless. Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. I'm talking about Ishmael. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, look toward the heaven and number the stars, if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. And Abram believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. That's a key. Let's put that in the back of our head there. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of the land of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. And he said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? He said to him, Bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these, cut them in half, and laid each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. And when birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. And then God also, I'm summarizing a bit here, he promises that his offspring, tells him that his offspring will be enslaved in Egypt for 400 years. He'll deliver them, but Abram will die in peace. So here, we have a, kind of the next step of the progressive revelation in a way, where God kind of sweetens the promise to Abram. And it's, it's funny because it's still kind of like all about Abraham. Uh, and that's not necessarily knocking on Abraham at all, but it's just kind of like that's what God's revealing to him, right? Like, but at this point, Abraham's got to be thinking like, like, why me? You know, like what's this all about? Like why am you picking me amongst all the, the families in this, on this earth and going to start a nation now? Like you're gonna start, you're not just gonna give my family land, you're gonna make nation. That's strange, unless there's something else coming, right? So then, Genesis 17, we have the covenant of circumcision, which is next, God's next revelation to Abraham. And this is the first mention of an everlasting covenant. God shifts his revelation from, I'm gonna give your offspring this land, 
to you will be the father of many nations. And then he promises Abraham his son, which is the beginning of that promise for the many nations. So Genesis 17, when Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty, which is funny. It's like, it's kind of like reintroducing himself in a way, but it's just kind of, remember, like God's like prepping Abraham for like the big reveal, okay? I am God Almighty, walk before me, be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you, and may multiply you greatly. Abram fell on his face, and God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. And I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant, to be God to you and to your offspring after you. I will give you and your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. And then God gives details to Abraham about circumcision, which we can just skip over for now, and then also about how Sarah is going to bear a son. And God said, no, but Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. So I read all that because God says three times, everlasting covenant. So the whole scene's blown up. Abraham first got like, okay, a nation, kind of like what we see in the Old Testament. And then here it's many nations. Okay, but still at this time, remember we're, we're back in the day still. It's like there's not really a concept of, of like global kingdom and network and nations. So it's like, what in the world is Abraham thinking? But God's still choosing to reveal himself in this way. So here, there's, that was kind of three gradual revelations of greater magnitude, greater magnitude. And from what I can see, it kind of leads up to this point. Genesis 22. I'm just, I'm just going to read it. And then we're, we'll unpack it a little bit. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering, laid it on Isaac and his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they both went, so they went both of them together. Isaac said to his father Abraham, My father, and he said, Here I am, my son. He said, Behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went both of them together. And when they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham, he said, here I am. 
He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do nothing to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his thorns, horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. This is the fourth big revelation here. And I, what I kind of consider like God's like big reveal to Abraham of who he is. He's the God who will provide and he's the God who will give his son. Because Abraham was willing to do it. That's the revelation. <laughs> that God is the God who will give his son. Who will give himself. This passage to me, is so deep and rich in meaning. Like especially even my son spent some time in the ICU shortly after he was first born and looking over at a ten, three-week-old baby connected to wires and chest compressions trying to, every breath, making it. And to think that God went to Abraham and said, are you willing to give that up? To show him that that is the kind of God that he is. He's the God who doesn't need you to go on a certain route, on a certain journey, to figure out your sacrifice. He's the God who provided the sacrifice. And this is why Jesus' introduction, his ministry, John 1.29, John the Baptist announces Jesus' coming. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And this is the best way, I think, to worship God. <laughs> in light of this revelation of God being the one who revealed himself, gave us a sacrifice because we could not, and made a way. Uh, I loved in worship, we sang, you made a way to enter the holy place, I am yours, you are mine. And then that last song, uh, pairing it uh, there's nothing that I have need of. There's nothing you haven't done. You make my soul alive. You put your love inside. I have to imagine that's what Abraham felt of when God saved Isaac in that moment and sh to show him that that's how he'll save the world. To finish at Genesis 22, Verse 16 says, but by myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you. I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore, and your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. 
In your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. So obviously that's Genesis. There's a whole (laughs) massive chunk of the Old Testament still left. And what's fun is God still continues to reveal himself to Israel in this way. Uh, Exodus 19 and 20 uh, is Moses encountering God on Mount Sinai. He reveals himself as savior, redeemer, provider, healer, leader, and then ultimately gives them essentially the framework for how he, they are to encounter him through following the, the cloud, and then we have the temple and the tabernacle. Um, and this, this is profound to me because it's showing that there's a whole life orientation around this sacrifice, okay? The Israelites, all of their movement, geographically and within like the nation was all about their sacrifices in the temple. So something I, remember we don't know the cross yet. I'm like, okay, so my worship, it has to be so much more than just like this singing thing. It's my whole life orientation. How am I oriented, and by what am I orienting it around? For Israel, it was the sacrificial system. It was the law and it was doing their best to follow it. So I'm gonna jump to the New Testament now. John 1.14 says, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. We have seen his glory, glories of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So uh, what's awesome about this is the, the word dwelt is similar to tabernacled, it's like the verb, and the word became flesh and tabernacled among us giving them that, that imagery of that whole life orientation of sacrifice. Okay, and remember, this is still before the cross, so we don't know what's gonna happen yet. Uh, and so again, I guess before we even jump to the cross, I wanna set the framework again here. What's fun about this is, from what, what we see here of God giving this progressive revelation in a sense, is that he was thinking about the cross the whole time. Uh, Genesis 3:15, right after the fall, God tells the snake, "I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel." And then we have everything Revelation. Ephesians 1:10 and 12, as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Him, things in heaven and things on earth as a plan for the fullness of time. In him we have an obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. In 2 Corinthians 1 and 20, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20, for all the promises of God find their yes in him. And what I, I really like about that is put, put that again in the context of Abraham kind of being that wandering mystery guy trying to figure out how God has revealed himself to him. All the promises of God find their yes in Jesus. So all of Abraham's promises from his offspring being blessed to a multitude of nations to obviously God providing the the ram on that mount. And so his interaction with Abraham gives us that first glimpse as the primary emphasis of the covenant to sacrifice the child of that promise, and God is the sacrificial lamb. So, 
In what terms, in what light, how do we worship God? It's that sacrifice. And I think what's fun here, I'm, I'm about to like f- kind of fly through some scriptures, which I guess that's kind of what I've been doing already. <laughs> uh, to me, it feels like it's just like overwhelming unity in the Bible that the means, the way I ought to worship is just the cross. It's the thing I want to know. It's the thing I want to be saturated with. It's, it's why I put my feet on the ground in the morning. So, in John 4, we see the Samaritan woman. She's looking for the place to worship. Jesus says, I'm the place to worship. Uh, We'll skip ahead here. In the book of Revelation, we could unpack this quite a bit here. Uh, there are 27 references to Jesus as the Lamb in that book. I want to invite the worship team to come up too, actually. Revelation 5 says, And I saw on the right hand of whom it was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? No one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or look into it. And one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. Between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns, with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. When he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp, which are the, I'm going to skip a little bit here. And they sang a new song saying, worthy are you to take the scroll to open its seals. You were slain. By your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked and I heard around the throne and living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2, 2, I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And what's amazing about that is it seems like that's kind of the picture in Revelation. Is in a sense they just, they are knowing nothing but him and him crucified. Paul says in Philippians 1, when there's reports of people uh, selfishly preaching the gospel, He's just like, hey, I'm glad it's being preached. <laughs> like, I'm glad the death, burial, resurrection of Jesus is being talked about. 1 Corinthians 15, he says, I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. First importance, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. 
And then First Peter, Peter says it so beautifully here. What is, what is this revelation? What, what is this thing? Why am I worshiping? Peter says, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. It's not just a salvation moment. It's a whole life orientation, empowerment of the Spirit, going out. This is why the cross, this is why I think God's leading up that revelation to Abraham is so mighty and profound. It's because in that moment, Abraham had to just be like, oh, I, like, he's this good. (laughs) He is this good to me that he's, he's gonna provide in these ways. I want you guys to stand now. So this to me, let's say uh, none of that was convincing that the light, in what light do we worship God, that it's the cross, that it's a sacrifice, that it's his uh, provision, him providing his own sacrifice to us, that wasn't convincing. This to me just boils it down so nicely and so like tangible for us to actually get a grasp on. In John 15, as he's commissioning out his disciples and preparing to go to the cross, he just tells them, I think one of the greatest words ever spoken. It says, greater love has no one than this, that someone laid down his life for his friends. And putting that in the context of the whole Old Testament, the sacrificial system, their offerings, their sacrifices, everything they've had to do to have access to God, Jesus is blowing it up. And he says, I made a way for you. The greatest demonstration of love that we could ever come up with was Jesus giving himself on the cross. That's why it's so important that we explicitly talk about the cross as Christians. Everything we do flows from it. And uh, J.I. Packer in the Knowing God book says it so wonderfully like this. I just want to quote him. He says, Let him that glories glory in this, that he understands and knows me. That's a quote from Jeremiah. For knowing God is a relationship calculated to thrill a person's heart. In light of this sacrifice, the love he showed, we can know him. I'm going to read one more scripture and then we're going to worship in light of this. John 19. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. 
and he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. And as she wept, she stooped to look down into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white, sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, They have taken away my Lord. I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom you are seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and asked to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. Let's worship.